0: This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for designated investment business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, 10th of November. With me today, I have Tim Steer. Tim needs little introduction from looking after Pink Floyd's sound system to becoming an accountant, an equity analyst, a leading firm manager at Newstar and Artemis, and now an accomplished author. Tim, good afternoon. Hi, Nick. Lovely to have you here today. At Pink Floyd sound system to an accountant seems like a very good place to start with your background, really.
1: Yeah, well, I was um, working uh, for... Music bands, rock and roll bands, for about six, seven years, and I'd reached reached a ceiling, really, and um, travelling around the world. And um, I thought, what can I do that isn't going to commit me, commit myself to anything too serious? And I've still got options in front of me. And I thought, um, let's be an accountant. So um, I was fortunate enough to be interviewed. I sent my applications uh, application off, um, and was fortunate enough to be interviewed by uh, a guy called Barry Nichols, who was the um, Beatles accountant at um, EY uh, and we hit it off. We had a fair bit in common and he luckily for me offered me a job at EY to study to be a chartered accountant. So um, that was good. It wasn't all plain sailing. I have to say in my first They test you quite hard, these Mm -hmm. firms. Uh, They take a big intake of uh, students, smart people. And, uh, you know, if you're not not good enough, they want to get rid of you quite quickly. So my first exam, after about two weeks, I didn't do very well. Because, you know, I was uh, not in exam mode at all. And I came pretty much last out of about 300 people, 250 people or so. So um, I realised that my next exam, I had to do a lot better. So um, I really worked like a dog. And... um, I knew that if I didn't do well, you know, it might be curtains for me as far as being an accountant. So um, I did work hard, and, and the night before the exam, I couldn't sleep. So I wand- wandered down Harris with Grove and uh, popped into a telephone there, and I rang my mum. And I said, Mum, I don't think I can do this. You know, it's not for me. I'm not in exam mode. I've had uh, seven years away from academia, and um, uh, I think I might jack it in. She said, you can't do that. I said, why? She said, well, I've just had... Robbie Sorder on from Britannia Row, which is the Pink Floyd's company, and they want you to do a nine month tour with Roxy Music all over the world. And I said, "Ooh, that sounds great. What's the money like? She told me it was great money. And I said, what did you say to him? What did you say to Robbie? He said, you're starting to be an accountant. He's not to ring you anymore. And I, and I trudged back to my little bedsit in Hammersmith Grove. And I did a bit more double entry bookkeeping <laughs> and <laughs> went into the exam and I came back third or fourth. So that was a very similar moment for me, four o'clock in, uh, on Hammersmith Grove. Uh, it was raining, it was winter or autumn, and uh, I came third or fourth. I can't remember. And I was very happy with the position I came in the exam. I thought, I've got to go ahead with this now. So I did, and I've never kind of looked back really.
0: So how long did you spend at EY? Uh, about four
1: years, and, um, and soon afterwards, I was lucky enough to get a job with James Capel, um, which was the leading stockbroker in um, the late 1980s, early 1990s. Had 15-odd percent market share in European and UK equities. It was a very happy place to be. It was um, prides itself on the independence of its research. It became top all the time. And it wasn't limited by having corporate, a lot of corporate mm-hmm. relationships with um, with companies. So it was a great deal of freedom to write um, what you liked and, um, or what you thought was appropriate about a company. I remember in my interview there uh, uh, with a guy called Mike Gearing, who was head of research at the time, there was about six or seven other people in the room, and after about an hour, he got rid of those six or seven people, and he, and he said, Tim, I want to talk to you on, on my own. So I was sitting about 12 feet away from him, and he said, come, bring the chair a bit closer. So I brought the chair closer to his desk, and he, um, he pulled me up quite close to him, and, and he said, Tim, he said, Tim, he was grabbing me by the lapel at the time. He said, <laughs> he said, this game this game, Tim Steer, in research is all about inside information, and every syllable he he banged his um, his finger into my chest, and I was sort of taken back by that, and he he said not not inside information in in, in the way that um you know getting it for the wrong sort of people, but. The, the annual report, Tim, he said, was full of inside information that wasn't in the public domain, or in, the, in, in theory it was, but in practice it wasn't because no one else mm-hmm. was looking at the information in the annual report. And I've kind of li- lived by that lexicon for um, um, uh, ever since, really. And that's been my kind of strength, as I've always taken the annual report. Very very seriously, and you know, and you know, if you look hard enough, there's a lot of stuff in there that will decide whether or not you want to buy or sell a company.
0: So, then James Capel to Smith Newcourt
1: yeah. I was, I, I got a call from um, the um, head of sales there, Ken Taylor, great man, and he said he'd like me to run this smaller company's um, research and sales operation. And um, obviously, that was a, a bought by. Uh, Merrill Lynch in the end, but those, those that time with James Capel and that time with Smith ducourt Court, Stroke Merrill Lynch were very happy times. Uh, uh, most most days, I couldn't wait to get into work. To be perfectly honest, um, there were such good people uh, on the sales side. Uh, enthusiasts, the sales traders were great. I enjoyed the company of market makers, and I found it you know quite easy to do business. And uh, I enjoyed being able to uh, research companies and. It, it, being a research analyst in places like James Capel uh, and Smith Ducourt and Merrill Lynch is basically like doing sort of lots and lots, lots of short term projects which have beginning, middles, and ends. And that's a great kind of job. Um, uh, and I like those kind of short term projects and um,
0: you know, had a great deal of fun there. And no sort of angry faces from your corporate brokers if you were writing sort of sell notes on, on businesses?
1: Uh, not really, no. There was one one occasion when, when some bankers said, uh, you're not to do that, Tim. But um, in fact, there was two occasions, really, quite serious ones, and um, which are unfortunate. Um, um, but by and large, I was allowed to write what I wanted. Um, uh, and, you know, Merrill's in particular, I was very lucky because I had a lot of freedom there for most of the time. In that I could look at, look at any company I wanted to do, as long as it was under uh, 2 billion valuation, which allowed me to go to the companies that were topical, which were trendy, which were sexy at the time. So, you know, from green investments, or green companies, to distributors, to retailers, to employment agencies, all those kind of sectors have their time in the sun as you go through a cycle. So you could move from one um, sector to another. Uh, very very quickly and you can catch a very large chunks
0: of business um, if you did that and then did you always have a, a short bias as it were or, or was you know, is that is that where you naturally felt at home going through the annual reports and finding holes
1: yeah I, I did enjoy that I mean I have to say in my life that as a broker as, a, as an investment Research analyst. Did I have a lot of corporate relationships? No, I didn't. Um, for lots of reasons, principally because I think I don't think Merrill's at the time was particularly interested in being broker or advisor to anything under two billion market cap. Anyway, so I had a lot of freedom. But looking for um, uh, short ideas, looking for issues with companies did actually excite me quite a bit. And um, you know, I, I live by what um, you know, Mike Gearing said to me in that interview, you know, the annual report was full of these nuggets and um, uh, and not you know, and, and no one else was really looking at them. So you had, you know, a great, rich vein of information that you could use.
0: And then you turned poacher, gamekeeper, or gamekeeper, poacher, depending on which side of the fence you are, yeah, I and moved to lucky. the buy side
1: Yeah, I was very lucky to be close to Alan Miller when he was at Jupiter, and he asked me to join um, John Duffield and him... Uh, at Newstar, and you know, at its peak, at at Newstar is running about three and a half billion of assets, um, or about, about three and a half billion of exposure dollars of assets uh, um, in, in equity markets, and um, quite a lot of that was in short positions. Yep. So, um, uh, yeah, that was great.
0: And then from Newstar. Yeah, well, a new,
1: yeah, new Star got um, gobbled up by Henderson, and, and at that point, I was very lucky to have been approached by Mark Tyndall, um, who was one of the founders, and John Dodd, founders of Artemis, and they asked me to join, and, you know, silly me, I should they did ask me to join back in 2000, but I wasn't ready for that, But it was a foolish mistake, um, um, but I um, eventually joined... Them in 2009 and I had you know a good six or seven years at which I enjoyed. I, I didn't run as much money at Artemis. It was a bit of a disappointment to me. I think uh, we found it quite difficult to raise uh, long short money there, and it was a bit easier at uh, Newstar. So, um, uh, but you know, running about one and a half million sterling of assets at Artemis, it wasn't too bad. We performed very very well, uh, and I got my AAA rating yep. from City which is which is good. So, no complaints whatsoever.
0: And then on to become an author.
1: Yeah, I well, obviously took um, a year off and, uh, and a little travelling, and then someone suggested I should write a book. And I thought, yeah, that's quite a good idea, because it kind of encapsulates everything I'd done for the last 10 odd years. Um, I enjoyed writing, obviously had a, a column in the, t- in the Sunday Times for quite a long time with Andy Bruff from Schroder's, which I enjoyed very much. And I've always enjoyed writing, and I thought, crikey, I could sit down and um, write a book and of sort of thirty short, odd sh- thirty odd short stories about disastrous companies. And I quite like writing about disastrous companies. And you know, every 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 example in the book is just shows that it's just one number that tells you that there's a problem with a company. And we try and point that out in the book uh, and you know help people along their way if they want to avoid disasters like, you
0: know, Carillion or Aston Martin. I mean, I think The Signs Were There is a a great book. It's a great way for non-accountants to gain an understanding into company accounts, really. And if you were to pick sort of one or two of your favourite case studies from the book, what would you pick? Well, I I think my greatest success... No, my greatest...
1: The one I felt so proud about and happy about was autonomy, because... It was littered full of red flags but unfortunately it wasn't a success for me uh, as a fund manager because you know being short of a company that gets taken over at a 70 percent premium mm. by a larger company in america called hewlett-packard <coughs> um, it wasn't a great day <coughs> excuse me in the office that day when he got taken over um but obviously you know it, it, a year later Uh, Hewlett Packard realized they'd made a terrible mistake. That, frankly, if they'd given a call to quite a few of us in the the city on the investment side in London, we could have told them and could have put them right and saved them about eight or nine billion dollars. But, and make sure they they bought it for 11 billion and wrote it down by about eight um, within a year or so. And uh, if that had been replicated um, in my my hedge fund, then uh, maybe the hedge fund would be alive and kicking this today and be running about sort of three or four billion because it would have made a hell of a difference to the performance right. if that
0: had actually gone the way it should have done but never mind and and an- another specific case study from the book do you think well
1: creating is a good one i mean um, you know the number the, the deaths were going up the accrued income was going up these are always a good signs but yeah. they're there being a problem but i kind of knew uh, quite quickly that i was probably right because um I remember being at the Chelsea Garden Show and meeting, meeting the chief executive of Corinne, and he found out that I was um, short of it. He chased me around the herbaceous borders, so I kind of, <laughs> I kind of knew that maybe that was, maybe I was right being short. Maybe you're something, short. yes.
0: Uh, and then are there a couple of, of key flags that people should look for in annual reports? What do you go to first?
1: Well, I think the overriding thing you've got to remember... Uh, in in any analysis from any investment decision is that when you look at a set of accounts cash is facts or cash is king but cash is fact everything else in a balance sheet is a matter of opinion and um, so you just have to be happy that those numbers uh, are are based on estimates that are reasonable okay and um, and so often we find in, in certainly in this book that many of the, um, the numbers were based on unreasonable assumptions. So that's the key thing. You know, numbers are based on, on estimates and based on assumptions, and you have to feel happy that they are reasonable assumptions. And the other thing I would say uh, is that you know, if you don't want to, you can't be really faffed to look through an annual report properly. Um, just get your two fingers out and run them down a balance sheet. Uh, And compare last year's number with this year's number and anything that's out by maybe 10-15% You should identify so if the act sales in the period gone up 10% It's entirely reasonable that debt has gone up 10% stocks gone up 10% or the other numbers in the balance sheet gone up 10% if they've gone up 50% or Mm. down 50% from the previous month and yet the activity levels Were um, up 10% you probably uh, you need to understand why that's a good place to
0: start um, uh, questioning management that's a good insightful for, for red flags um and then another book in the locker or is that you done with two editions well,
1: we've yeah, I've written these two and the blue one and the yellow one and i think if i did another one I and mean, the great thing about the first two books is they are kind of r- almost mostly r- real life war stories so they actually did happen and i was involved in shorting the share you know, most of the exams in the shares so I there is another book then it would be, you know, a bit kept in hindsight. And um, it wouldn't have quite the same carrying value, I think, that uh, maybe the first two, two books have.
0: I mean, the first two books have been very successful. Have you sold sort of 10,000 copies? Is that right?
1: I would say about that, yes. I mean, also, as a result of the book, I've been asked to do a lot of talks. So I've done about 100 um, lectures all over Europe and the UK. And the big firms of accountants seem to be quite keen on me talking to their people about... How to spot potential disaster scenarios um, and maybe how you should
0: have talked spoken to some of those before
1: Yeah, well, I've been mm-hmm. talking to these people quite a long time. So um, But you know, we all learn
0: <laughs> we all learn <laughs> well, exactly right exactly right and now, and now how you know, What's on the the agenda next for Tim's Steer? Well, I'm um, I've been looking at setting up an
1: ETF business based on um, uh, Analyzing companies from a purely data point of view so um, yeah, the traditional way of fund management has been to interview a lot of companies, meet management, look at the valuation uh, and see where we are in the cycle and decide whether you buy or, or a company or not. I personally think that the way forward is um, t- analysing the data, analysing the numbers associated with with a company. So, and these these attributes can be divided into quality, value, growth, and momentum attributes. And if you get all those in the right way. Uh, and the right combination, uh, and you invest in those companies, you tend to do better than doing a fund management in a conventional way. And in both my time at Newstar and Artemis, I used these kind of tools. And frankly, if I'd listened to them more, I would have done better. I did okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we were triple rated uh, at the end at Artemis, and the fund was a top-performing fund. But uh, you know, if I had looked at the numbers even more than I did, I would have done even better. So taking that forward into the new world, I think is the way forward for fund management. And you know, fund managers generally, I'm afraid to say, underperform their indices generally on a long-term or a medium-term basis. Very few people do it consistently for a very long time. And I think one way of improving that is to use AI or to use screening tools much more effectively. And that's what I'd like to do. But you know, to to take it further, you do need to have sales and marketing, and sales and marketing, and a brand, and, and sales and marketing is, um, you know, you need to find a good partner to do that with. So it's like
0: a hybrid passive product, then I guess. So it's sort of a, uh, an active, it's a passive product with an active element.
1: Yeah, it's going to be. I mean, mo- most most ETFs are pretty passive. Okay, uh, they're thematic. Uh, I would like to take the ETF. An ETF into an active world, where you reposition the portfolio maybe once a quarter, yeah. uh, rather than over time. And you know, the other great advantages for ETFs over unit trusts, you know, they're, 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 you can see through them, you can see what's in them, you can deal eight hours a day at least, they're very liquid, and, um, and they're cheaper than unit trusts. And so, you know, the world, the tsunami of ETFs is coming to um, a fund manager near you soon, but not at the moment. Um, because turkeys don't vote for Christmas uh, and unit trusts have been and USITS have been a very profitable mm-hmm. bit of business for fund managers and they charge quite a lot and why would a turkey vote for Christmas and and, 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 and launch loads of ETFs alongside your existing
0: unit trusts I don't think you will do although I guess Vanguard is taking a lot of a lot of market share and you know and, and cutting fees aggressively
1: yeah yeah and um, was it 30 million customers they've got um, but they are very passive, and, um, uh, you know, it's the next step. You know, it's, they're doing active ETFs. Vanguard and BlackRock are doing a lot of passive ETFs, some semi-active ones. But I think, you know, it would, be a very, uh, it would be a very good thing for a UK fund manager or a European fund manager to start embracing the world of ETFs in the way they've embraced the world of ETFs.
0: But, you know, Tur- as I said, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. It'll take them time. No, that makes a makes lot of sense. And then, you know as my regular listeners know, I tend to close with three questions um, Tim, if we can take one at a time that'd be great your greatest inspirational mentor
1: well i've got I've got three people really and um, this is the world of work so um you know to be a um, good fund manager or to be a good um Research analyst, really, you've got to have three things. You've got to to do good research for a start. And Mike Gearing was my inspiration for that, you know, pointing me in the direction of the annual report, the gems that are hidden in there. So, and, and he was a great enthusiast. Uh, and um, a real character, a fantastic person. And there's John Duffield, you know, who I worked for at Newstar. He was a great marketing guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, and no one could take that away from him. He built up the brand of Jupiter and Newstar very, very quickly. And both those companies raised a lot of money. And a lot of that was to do with, not with the performance, of the fund mergers, but his marketing, his branding. And then um, also, you know, you need to sell. And, um, and Ken Taylor, the head of sales at uh, Smith-Newcourt, was a great inspiration for me he recruited me out of um out of James Capel into Smith Newcourt and uh, you know a great salesman and a great enthusiast so those three people kind of would have been my sort of mentors and people I looked up to um
0: over my life as you know in financial services excellent and then apart from your own book that's inspired you do you have another book that's inspired you Uh, I'm not
1: sure about inspiration, but books I've liked. Well, well, actually, actually, no. I mean, inspiration, pure inspiration, um, would be... um, There's a book called Cochrane the Dauntless. uh, And this was... um, This is a sort of a tale of daring do. but Cochrane was a, a naval commander, so good that Nelson didn't want him in his fleet. He was too (laughs) good. But he did the most incredible things um, in his short, well, his short life, in that he... Obviously, uh, he defeated the French many, many times during the Napoleonic Wars. But he then went on to liberate Chile from the Spanish. And he liberated uh, Peru from the Spanish by commanding the Navy. Then he came back to the UK and became an MP. Then he, get, he got involved in a stock exchange scandal. And I think he went to prison for it, a bit of insider dealing there. And then, and then he went off to command the Greek Navy and um, duffed over the Turks. Now there is a man who lived her life. Mm-hmm. And he was the inspiration for you know, Patrick O'Brien um, yes. and yeah. um, Master and Commander uh, and stuff like that. But he he had he had more of a interesting life than perhaps um, Master and Commander guy. So that's those that's a great book. But obviously, being more serious, I've enjoyed all the books by um, on Russia. Russia's quite interesting, how how it can be taken over by some um, Pretty interesting people and and Bill Browder and yep. Catherine Belton's book Putin's people you know are, are, are all, are all good books
0: and then I guess a red notice you'd add to that as well or a red notice yeah the bills bills book yeah. yeah yeah and then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career to follow in your footsteps
1: well it's quite a few things
0: but you know pursue your d-
1: dream take a risk um, get out of your comfort zone um, play team sports um, get a qualification and um, opportunities, big opportunities come across your table rarely or very, not very often in your life. And if you get an opportunity, you must take it, okay, and a big opportunity. And, um, you know, you get two or three, there's forks in the row, The seminal moments and um, don't hold back. If it's a little bit risky, it doesn't matter. Still go for it. So because this op- this opportunity won't come along um, soon. So I would say embrace um,
0: risk and embrace those opportunities that you get offered. Very sage advice. Tim, how can, uh, how can listeners get uh, in touch with you? I'm on LinkedIn. Is that under Tim Steer or? Yes. Fine. Yeah. Good. I'm on Twitter, but <laughs> I think we're all coming off Twitter, Twitter aren't we? <laughs> It's cost you far too much money for that blue tick, isn't it, now? <laughs> yes. Uh, Tim, thank you very much today. It's been, it's been insightful.
1: Great. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for uh, inviting me over.
0: Thanks for listening to A Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.